If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite your attention to the book of 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians, verses 9, 10, and 11. And the title of the message today is, Since Jesus Came Into My Heart, an expression that we use often to talk about how we came to know the Lord Jesus as our personal Savior and what a transformation took place as a result of that. But 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning with verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Now notice he says in verse nine that he says in a negative way, do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to say, don't be deceived that those who are unrighteous will not enter or inherit the kingdom of God. Now the word deceived is an interesting word. In the Greek language, it comes from the same word uh, that we get our English word planet, planet. And the history or the background of the word is that the ancients, the ancient people, would look up into the heavens, not understanding all that was taking place. And they could see the stars and the planets moving around. And they felt that it presented an idea of, 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 they were puzzled about all of that. There seemed to be no uh, stability at it at all. And so the word that was translated planet, planeo is the Greek word. It literally means to go astray or to wander about. So there seemed to be that those planets were just, uh, just going astray and wandering about. There was no system uh, to it at all. And it often came to mean uh, the idea of being self-deceived. People who think that they can live any way that they want to, that they can just wander around when it comes to morality and, 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 and not have any righteous behavior or activity at all and then still go to heaven. And Paul is saying, don't wander away about this. Don't be puzzled about this. Don't be deceived about this. That if you do not live a righteous life, you will not be a part of the kingdom of God. No exceptions to it at all. And so Paul is telling us or telling the Christians there at Corinth to whom he was writing. And, and by the way, the city of Corinth was one of the most immoral uh, uh, as far as morals was concerned and the lifestyles of, of, of the people in that city of perhaps any other city that, that Paul had any connection with at all. They were a very immoral people. And uh, Paul was saying to them, you, you, you may have lived that kind of lifestyle, but when you came to Jesus, things changed. And you should no longer live in that kind of lifestyle. Look at the list of the kind of sins that he mentioned here. Notice in verse 9, he says, uh, don't be deceived or misled. 
fornicators, uh, which simply means people who uh, sexually are immoral, idolaters, uh, we usually think of idolaters as somebody would bow before a stone or a stick or whatever, but whatever takes the place of God in your life, it may be your business. It may be your family. It may be your education. It may be something else. It doesn't have to be a physical uh, idol like a stone or a stick. Anything that you put first in your life and you give your allegiance to, that is your idol. And so you can be an idolater. And then he says uh, adulterers. Of course, that's self-explanatory where uh, one a married individual has a sexual relationship with a, somebody else other than their, their married person, their, their uh, wife or, or husband effeminate. Uh, the word effeminate uh, literally means a soft touch and it carries the idea of an individual who would dress and act and behave uh, in, a, in a way opposite of what his or her sex may be. It would be a man who, who has a, a effeminate approach and lifestyle and behavior of that of a woman or a woman of that of a man. And then of course he said homosexuals. Uh, we understand that concept. Thieves, Covetors, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. These people, he says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, lest you get puffed up and say, well, I'm not guilty of any of those things. Remember what Jesus said to the, to the people who came to him recorded in Matthew's gospel um, when they were talking about uh, the Galileans who had been, been killed and by the people in Siloam on whom the building had fallen. And, and they, they were, had the idea, well, boy, they must have really been corrupt, sinful people to have been punished that way. And Jesus' response to them was, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. So we dare not judge other people uh, uh, un, uh, you know, unfairly. Yes, these people who commit such things will perish. But if we don't repent, you know, you, you can be just a, a, you know, what do you have to do to go to hell? Nothing. Nothing. Just stay like you are. And staying like you are is what, because you're a sinful person by nature. When you were born, you received a sinful tendency from your mother and dad. You don't have to tell a child to do wrong. They naturally do that. You have to teach them to do right. And every person that's born into this world, you and myself included, have the tendency to do what's wrong rather than what's right. And so unless we repent of our sins, then we too will perish. But when Jesus came into your heart, notice what he says in verse 11. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. I love the words to the song that the choir and all of us sang just a few moments ago about since Jesus came into my heart. What a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart. Now, Charles Spurgeon once said, the greatest of all miracles is the salvation of a soul. It really is. Uh, the hymn writer or songwriter uh, talked about the miracle working power of the Lord to transform an individual. So someone has said, creation is the result of God's hand, but salvation is the result of God's heart. And so God gives to us what the writer of Hebrews says, so great a salvation that we can be saved. So there are four things that I want to share with you this morning as we think about what happens to us since Jesus came into our hearts. And the first idea is that when Jesus came into your heart or if he comes into your heart, if you're not already a Christian, then there will be a change that will take place in your life. 
In verse 11, Paul says to those at Corinth, such were some of you. And he's talking about their past. He's talking about their lifestyle and the kind of people they were before they invited Jesus to come into their hearts. We sing about since Jesus came into my heart, that is simply another way of saying that we receive Jesus. In John chapter one, Jesus, the Bible talks about, John's gospel talks about in as many as would receive Jesus to them, he gave the right to become the sons of God. To receive Jesus, to use a, a, a natural uh, illustration, if someone were to come to your house and you opened the door, invited them in, you in essence receive them into your home. When you invite Jesus into your heart, you are receiving him. And so when you receive Jesus, when you invited him into your heart, a change took place. He said to the Corinthians, such were some of you, but that has changed. And there are two things about this change that's written for you on your outline. First of all, it's a drastic change, a drastic change. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, the word creature in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 can also be translated creation. Uh, that when you invited Jesus and he came into your heart, you became a new creation. Go back with me in your mind to the first chapter of Genesis. The first verse of chapter 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now from that verse, as well as the rest of the chapter and all of the first two or three chapters of Genesis, we know that there was a time when nothing existed but God. But God spoke and brought something into existence that had never existed before. The world, he created the heavens and the earth, brand new. When you invite Jesus into your heart, he makes within you a new creation. You become a new creation. Jesus is not in the restoration business. He didn't come to reform you. He didn't come to rehabilitate you. You have been recreated on the inside. You are a new creature on the inside. And as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 7.25, um, talking about the Lord's grace cleansing us and forgiving us to the uttermost. Someone has taken that term uttermost and said from the guttermost to the uttermost, a drastic transformation has taken place in a person's life. John Newton, the individual who wrote our famous Baptist standard of our Baptist anthem, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, said on one occasion, I am not all that I used to be, are what I want to be, but thank God I'm not what I used to be. So there is a great, drastic, dramatic transformation in a person's life when they come to the realization that they are sinners and cannot do anything about it themselves, and they look to the Lord Jesus Christ, recognizing him as the Son of God who died on the cross to save them from their sins, and then opened up their hearts and lives to him and invited him to come in and save them and a change takes place. They're just not the same. So there's a drastic change, but then it's also a divine change in that this is a change that God can only do. You cannot do it yourself. You cannot reform yourself. There's not enough good deeds that you can do 
that would transform you and satisfy the demanding laws of, of God and uh, it's all by grace and it is his. In Romans 1.16, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now in Romans 1.16, there are four things that I want to point out to you. If you have your Bible perhaps open to that, you might turn to it quickly. Romans 1.16. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then he says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And the reason why he puts it that way is because you remember in the book of John, it says that Jesus came into his own and his own received him not. And so he then turned to the Gentiles. So first the Jews, because the Jews are the chosen people of the Lord. It was through the Jews and through Abraham that salvation would come, but they rejected him. So they turned to the Gentiles and we're living in what's called the Gentile age of the gospel. But there are four things that come out of Romans 1, 1 that talks about the divine change. First of all, it's the power of God for salvation. That's why it's called divine. It is the power of God. It's divine salvation. Secondly, it is a salvation that is available for everyone. For I am not ashamed, he says, that it is the power of God for salvation to everyone. So every person is included in God's offer of salvation. That doesn't mean that everybody will be saved. But the salvation is there. The invitation is there for whoever will may come and be saved. So it's the power of God, which means that it's divine. It's available for everyone. Thirdly, the salvation requires belief. Notice that it says for salvation to everyone who does, who works for it. No, who believes. And that means more than intellectual acceptance. You know, the devil believes in God. The devil believes in Jesus. But he's not a Christian. He's not a follower of the Lord. And he is the enemy of the Lord. He is your enemy. But all of the demons recognized Jesus when he approached the Gadarene demoniac. The demons that were on the inside of that recognized Jesus. Jesus, thou son of God, why have you come to torment us before it's our time? So the devil and the demons know who Jesus is and they admit who he is, but they're not committed to him. They are antichrist. So uh, an atheist, well, yeah, he may say, well, yeah, Jesus, I, he, I understand that, but he's not committed to him. It's someone who believes. Believe is more than just an intellectual acceptance. It's a commitment that you believe and commit yourself to Jesus. So it's the power of God, what makes it divine. It's for everyone, and it comes about through your belief. To everyone who believes. And then number four is God's salvation is not something of which we should be ashamed. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of it. Don't ever be ashamed to be a Christian. Don't ever be embarrassed to speak up for the Lord. When you find yourself in a situation where you have an opportunity to be a witness for the Lord, uh, don't be afraid or ashamed to stand up thinking people are going to make fun of you. They may. They may joke, at, uh, uh, joke about you and what you say. But again, as we said last week, we, we expect persecution to happen just uh, just realize that you're to be a, a witness for the Lord and make a stand for the Lord and don't ever be ashamed for people to know that you are a child of the King. John Peterson wrote, my father is omnipotent and that you can't deny. A God of might and miracles, tis written in the sky. It took a miracle to put the stars in place. 
It took a miracle to hang the world in place. But when he saved my soul, cleansed and made me whole, it took a miracle of love and grace. So it is a divine change and it is a drastic change that comes about when you receive Jesus Christ into your life. There is a transformation. You are a new creation. You're just not the same anymore. Notice the second thing. Not only is it a changed life, but it is a cleansed life because he goes on to say in verse 11, such were some of you, but you were washed. Take your Bibles if you still have them open and turn to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus and Thessalonians over in that area. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. Titus 3 verse 5 speaks of the washing of regeneration. Titus 3 5 says that he saved us, Jesus or God saved us, not on the basis of our deeds, which we have done in righteousness. Again, here Paul is saying, you're not saved by what you do, even though you may be doing good things, right things. That's not what saves you. You don't, you don't do good things and good deeds in order to be saved. You do them because you have been saved. And here he's very clearly stating that God saved us not on the basis of our deeds. He didn't, he didn't open up a book where he kept all the records of the things that you've done and said, well, man, look at all these things that he's done. One, two, three, four, a hundred things that you've done that are good and righteous. They may be good and righteous, but that's not what's going to save you. It's not of any deeds that you have done. But, he says, according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration means, of course, to be born again. It means a new start, a radical new start. And he compares the idea of washing your sins away as an act of regeneration. Two things about this washing away of our sins. First of all, on your outline, it says that our sins have been forgiven. Hebrews 9.22 says that all things are what? Cleansed with blood could also be said all things are washed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so, you know, what, what does blood do? I'm, I'm not a scientist or a doctor or anything, but I, if I understand elementary things about uh, science and about blood. What does blood do for you? It circulates through your body. It takes nutrients and, and good things to the various tissues of your body, but then it takes away the, the waste things from, your, from the different parts of your body as well. So it, it cleans your heart. It cleans your, your body. The blood does that. And, and the Bible says in Hebrews that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. This was made perfectly clear, clear in the book of Genesis from the very beginning when Adam and Eve sinned and disobeyed the Lord and tried to cover their sins by, by handmade uh, aprons out of leaves, inadequate. And then it says that the, the Lord took the skin of an animal and, and made clothes for them to cover their nakedness, where did they get that? Where did God get that skin? Well, evidently, an animal of some kind somewhere in the Garden of Eden had to have died so that God could then take the skins, being the blood had been shed, and take the skin and cover their nakedness. You see this pattern all through, all through the Bible when uh, the people of Israel were in the bondage of Egypt 
How did they escape the death angel that passed over their houses? God said, take a lamb, slay it, take its blood, put it over the top of the door and on the sides. And when the death angel sees that blood, it will pass over that house and not enter that house. And the firstborn will not die. To the day of Christ when he stood in the upper room with the disciples to do what? To observe the feast of the Passover. That he took the cup and the bread and broke the bread and gave it to them and said, this is my body. Took the cup, said, take it and drink it. It is blood that is shed for the forgiveness of sin. It's a new covenant, he says. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. And once the blood is shed, we are forgiven. Jesus shed his blood on the cross of Calvary. And when you accept and receive Jesus, that sacrificial, vicarious death of Jesus on the cross satisfies God for your sins and you are forgiven. Not only are you forgiven, but your sins are forgotten. Look at it in Hebrews 10, 17, if you would print it for you on your outline. Hebrews 10, 17. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. God just wipes the slate clean and you get a whole new start, a whole new creation in, in Christ Jesus. And, uh, and as I've said to you before, when, when you're praying or you're thinking and, and, uh, and some of your past sins come up uh, and, you, and you say, oh, I, I remember those terrible things that I did, those sinful things that I did. The God is not doing that to you. It's the devil who is doing that to you. And so you just say to the, tell the devil, I, you remind me of my past, but I'm reminding you of your future. You're going to spend eternity in hell. I'm not. The shed blood of Jesus Christ covers your sins. And if you were to ask God, you remember those sins? He says, what sins? God forgets whatever sin you committed, no matter how heinous it may have been, how terrible it may have been. Doesn't matter how many times you did it. God, when you repented and trust Christ as your Savior, his blood wipes the slate clean, and God never brings up those past forgiven sins to you again. It's a whole new start. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this I see. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so you get a clean life. Not only a changed life, but a clean life. God cleans you up. God washes you and makes you clean and pure and before his very eyes. A third thing is a consecrated life. He says in verse 11, not only were you washed, but you were also sanctified. The word sanctified literally means to be set apart unto God. Not just set apart, but set apart unto God. And uh, so a saint uh, is an abbreviation for separation or, or sanctification. Uh, that's, that word saint is just an abbreviation of that. It means that you've been set apart by the Lord. And uh, there are two things about this sanctification, this consecration. One is we become God's child. John 1, 12. But as many as received him, that is Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Now notice that when you received Jesus, you became a child of the Lord. You became a member of the family of God. You are now a part of the family of God. 
Membership in God's family is by grace alone. It is the gift, he says, not of anything that you have done. He gave them the right to become children of God. So it's all a gracious act on God's part. God just loves you. Jesus died for you. His sins covers your sins. He doesn't remember those sins. He cleanses you of your sin and you are born into the family of God. That's why Jesus referred to a new birth when he talked to Nicodemus. You're born into the family of God. Just like you were born into your physical family, spiritually you're born into the spiritual family of God and you become a child of the king. Not only do you become a child of the king, but the second thing is you become God's property. God's property. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for your salvation. He paid for your redemption. And across all the list of your sins, he wrote, paid in full. Over in the book of Colossians, he talks about how the devil would accuse uh, Paul or any Christian of the sins that they've committed. And Paul says that, that all of your sins, and he used it like a, uh, an example of taking all of your sins and writing down on a piece of paper all of your sins, every sin that you've ever committed, every evil thought that you ever had, every evil word that you ever did, every evil deed that you've ever done. He just put it all on a list and he took it and nailed it to the cross of Calvary. All of your sins, big, little ones, black and white color, it doesn't matter. All of your sins were nailed to the cross and you became a child of the Lord and you became his property because he bought you. The word bought here literally means a, a term used of, of buying a slave and setting that slave free. Paul tells us in the book of Romans that you are a slave either to sin and Satan or to God and righteousness. And before you met Jesus, before you asked Jesus to come into your heart, you were not your own boss. You got orders from Satan. Satan was your master and you were, when you commit sin, remember what Jesus said? When you commit sin, you become a slave to sin. You think you can conquer sin. No, you can't. When you commit a sin, then the next time you're tempted to do it, it gets a little bit easier. And the next time a little bit easier. And before you know it, sin takes control of you. So without Christ as your savior, you are a slave and, and the devil owns you, so to speak. But when you get saved and when you invite Jesus into your heart, what happens is you change masters. You're still a slave, but you're just not a slave to the devil anymore. Now you are a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'd rather be his slave than the devil's slave any day. The Lord Jesus is our master. We call him Lord, not only Savior, but Lord. Is Jesus your Lord and your Savior? To call Jesus Lord means that he is the master of your life, that he owns you, he controls you, he tells you what to do, where to go, and what to say. You become a slave, and he bought you, and you become his property. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? God does not live in this building God lives in your body, in your heart. Your body, my body has become the temple of the Lord because the Holy Spirit came into my life. That's Jesus in the spirit. And when I received him, he came into my life and he dwells within me. He dwells within you. And your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit 
that you received from the Lord. And you, he says very clearly, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. And therefore glorify the Lord in your body. So you have a changed life. You're a different person. You're not the same that you used to be. You've been all cleaned up, cleansed life. We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then you have this consecrated life where God sets you apart unto himself. And he is a jealous God. He doesn't want to share you with anything or anybody else. You belong to Jesus. And then the fourth and final thing is accredited life. And by accredited life, I mean that God just credits your account, your spiritual account. You were in debt, but now he is credited to your spiritual account, the righteousness that you were lacking. So in verse 11, he goes on to say, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Now the word justified means that God has pronounced you righteous. God has pronounced you not guilty, not guilty. And he wipes the slate clean. We have no righteousness of our own, but God has credited to your spiritual account the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When he looks at you, he doesn't see your unrighteousness. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. I remember several years ago reading in one of Dr. Criswell's books uh, the, the illustration that he used about a father and a son who, who, who were in a building watching a parade go by and, and they were standing behind stained glass windows that had a, a pane of red stained glass in it. The little boy was only so high he couldn't see like his daddy. And so when he was looking at the parade through that stained glass window, he was looking at it through the red pane. And a parade came by and a band came by dressed in white. And the little boy said to his dad, oh, look, dad, at, the, at those uh, band, the band members are dressed in red. And he said, no, son, they're not dressed in red. They're, they're dressed in white uniform. He said, no, dad, it's red. And the dad bent over and looked at them through the red stained glass. When you look at something white through red glass, it's, it's red. It's red. When God looks at you, he looks at you through the shed blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't see your righteous, uh, unrighteousness. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. And he says to his son, Jesus, look, there's a righteous person. And he's looking through the shed blood of Jesus when he does that. And so there's a change there. He pronounces you. You're not righteous, but he pronounces you that. It's just like when a minister stands at, a, at an altar and, and, and pronounces a man and a woman. I now pronounce you husband and wife. And, and he, doesn't, he doesn't make them married. Uh, I, as a preacher, I don't make people married. Uh, I just perform a ceremony in which I pronounce them to be husband and wife. You cannot make yourself righteous. I cannot make you righteous. But God does, and he says, I pronounce you righteous. That's what justification is. And from the time that you are saved, remember I've used this definition of justification so many times, you ought to be able to dream about it in your sleep. What does justification mean? It means that when you accepted Jesus from that point on, God treats you just as if you had never sinned. That's what justification literally means. Now notice two things about justification. Justification is based on the atonement of Christ. Now you say, what in the world is atonement? That's a big word, isn't it? But break it up and repronounce it. 
at one month. Because you see, before you became a Christian, you were separated from the Lord. But the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And what happens is that when you trust Jesus, Jesus takes hold of your heart and God's heart and he brings you together. You've been separated by sin, but in Jesus, you're brought together and you are at one with the Lord. And that is based on the sacrificial death of Jesus. Notice Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So you're a sinner. Everybody is. But you are treated as though you had never sinned based on the atonement of Jesus. Jesus dying for you and dying and becoming sin in your place. So justification is based on the atonement of Jesus. Secondly, justification credits righteousness to the believer. In Romans 3, 3, it says, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. What did he do? Work for the Lord? No, he believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. God just put it on his spiritual account. And one thing about it is that this is a, an instantaneous experience when you trust Jesus. You don't have to go through a learning process. You don't have to go through any kind of uh, 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 discipleship class or anything to get saved. It happens the very split second that you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. A few days ago, I was privileged to visit a lady in a nursing home here in our city. She was struggling about whether or not she had really been saved. And uh, she says, well, I, I, think I'll, I think I'm all right. And I asked her, well, have you, ever, have you ever invited Jesus in your heart? Well, I think, I think I have. I think I have. I said, well, it's not a matter of thinking. It's a matter of knowing whether or not you take Jesus as your Savior. And I use that term, take Jesus as your Savior. She grabbed hold of my hand and she said, looking at me, I take Jesus Christ as my Savior. Take him as my Savior. And I said, congratulations. Welcome to the family of God because you have been instantly born again. That's what it means to take Jesus, invite him, receive him into your heart. And it happens instantaneously. It is freed or you are freed from all sins. Now, you ever buy a product and you keep it for a while and it, and it breaks down some way or another and you say, you look at the papers, uh, this refrigerator or stove or this TV or whatever it is, it has a warranty on it, guaranteed. So you take it back to the place where you bought it and you hand the, the, the receipt over to him and the warranty over to him and he looks at it and he says those dreaded words that you don't want to ever hear your warranty has expired it's expired you will never hear Jesus saying that to you you can never take your salvation to Jesus and he says I'm sorry but time's run out and your salvation is expired it is eternal. It is everlasting. You can't lose it. It's yours forever, forever. So we go back to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and through 11. He says, don't be deceived. Don't be like the wandering planets and the stars that have no direction seemingly. Don't be self-deceptive. If you are not righteous, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
Do you want to inherit the kingdom of God? Most of us have here today. I'm a member of the kingdom of God. Many of you, I look, I know, I know you know the Lord Jesus. You're a part of the family of God. You're a part of the kingdom of God. Somebody here today may not be. How do you get to be a part of the kingdom of God? It begins with repentance. That's what it says. Jesus said, unless you repent, you'll likewise perish. So you must repent. Well, what does repent mean? Repent means that you realize that you're a sinner and you realize that Jesus saved, died on the cross to save you. So repent means to turn away from your sins and you turn to Jesus. It's not just turning away. This is not a reformation. This is not a New Year's resolution that you're going to do. I'm going to be better this year. I'm going to do more righteous things. No, it's not a New Year's resolution. It is a dramatic transformation that takes place when you turn away from your sins and you turn to Jesus. You do an about face. You're going in the direction of the world. You're going into the direction of sin. You stop it. You turn around and you go to Jesus and you go in that direction. That's what repentance is. You stop sinning and you turn to Jesus. And Jesus said, except you repent, you'll likewise perish. So don't fool yourself into thinking that you're okay. You're not like uh, some other people that I know that drink and carouse around and run around and steal and lie and do all these kinds of things. You're not worried about other people. Worried about you. You need to worry about yourself. Don't compare yourself. You know, when I start comparing myself to a lot of you, I'm a lot better than some of you. And you look back at me and say, yeah, well, preacher, I'm a lot better than you are too. I know that. But I don't compare myself to you. When I compare myself to the Lord Jesus, I fall short. I don't hardly even get up off ground zero when I start comparing myself to Jesus. I'm nothing. And so I've stopped deceiving yourself into thinking that you're okay. You're not okay. And I'm not okay. But Jesus is, and when you trust him, you get his righteousness, and that's okay. That's okay. So don't fool yourself into thinking that just because you may not have committed any of the sins that Paul listed here in the scriptures that you're okay. You're not. The Bible says we have all sinned, no exceptions to this. All of us have sinned. And the Bible says that we must repent and turn to Jesus and trust him as Lord Savior. So I ask you, have you received Jesus into your heart? Have you exchanged the old life for the new life and that on the inside of you, you are a brand new creation? You've been cleansed. You've been credited with righteousness. And God says, you're justified. Let's bow together, please. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will take the words that are found upon the pages of this holy book that we call the Bible, the words that you inspired. Open up our minds of understanding that we might see without question what it means to be a Christian, how the transformation that takes place once we ask Jesus and receive him and take him to be our Savior, that... Uh, whole new life begins for us. Many of us who are here today have experienced that. They understand what I've been talking about. But Lord, don't take my words. Take your words. Take the words, Holy Spirit, that you have inspired and apply them to our hearts and open our eyes of our souls to understand 
And if there's someone here today who needs to be saved, Holy Spirit of God, bring conviction upon their hearts and bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus so that they can know and experience a new life in Christ. In your name I pray, amen. We're going to stand and sing. Brother Chris is going to lead us. Would you stand, please? And if God is leading you to come today with your decision, please come.